Welcome to the Grattan Report podcast. You're with Megan from the Grattan Institute and today we're discussing adaptive learning in the classroom. Whilst Australia has a number of bright spots across the nation when it comes to school education, our current system is not adequately addressing the complex challenges it faces. Flat or declining performance both nationally and internationally, an unacceptable number of students not prepared for life after school and persistent equity gaps among schools are all indicators of a system not fit for purpose. Joining me on today's podcast is School Education Program Director Pete Goss to chat about his discussion paper Towards an Adaptive Education System in Australia, which aims to highlight the questions we should be asking when it comes to our education system and proposes six ways it could become more adaptive. Welcome to the podcast, Pete. Great to be back with you, Megan. Pete, you've seen firsthand the successful application of an adaptive education system improving educational outcomes. Can you talk about the real-world application of this approach? Absolutely. The paper overall is about how do we get improvements for 3.8 million students across Australia. But in some ways, the answer has to be, well, one by one. So let's talk about what happens in a classroom where teachers are really being adaptive, where they are choosing the approaches that work best. Let me introduce to you three young teachers. I'll call them Kate, Naomi and Natalie. These teachers worked in a very disadvantaged school, the most disadvantaged school in their regional New South Wales town. I I met with them in March 2015, as with a number of other teachers in the school. Um, But what these three teachers said really stuck with me. Kate started off by talking about what the school had been like four years ago, and they were pouring their hearts into trying to support these very disadvantaged students, but it wasn't really working. They knew that, but they couldn't actually tell how much their students were learning. Their assessments were not good enough, and so they didn't really know what was working, was what you were doing better than what I was doing, and if you can't tell that, well, how can you improve? So instead, they poured their hearts and souls into making the kids feel better. Now, that's really important, but it's not in the end the overarching goal of education, nor what will change the kids' lives. That had really changed. And in that time from four years ago to now, the school that they were at, which I'll call Brightvale, had been part of a New South Wales program called Early Action for Success. The way the teachers talked about their job today was really very different. Um, Natalie said, I feel more accountable than ever before. And that's an interesting word. It's not a word that I introduce that often into conversations with teachers because the idea of being accountable, everyone accepts it at some level, of course, but it sounds pretty scary. It sounds like someone from head office looking over your shoulder, trying to see if you've done something wrong. Naomi talked about being more efficient um, and Kate no longer wanted to quit to quit her job. Um, she was really more engaged. So we asked, well, what's happened to actually make you feel more accountable? What do you mean by that? And all of them kind of bubbled over and started saying, well, we now know how much our students are learning. Um, and the way they know that is they're using a common language around what each student knows, what students need to know next, um, that was provided by the department, but that they have made their own. And now that they know how much each student is learning and they can see which ones are making great progress and which are not, they feel accountable, not just for how the kids feel, but for how much learning progress they're making each year. 
And this started to flow through into some different ways of working. They were actually able to start adapting their practice based on what was happening locally and informed by the evidence. And so I said, can you give me a specific example? It's, it's lovely to hear that they felt better, but, but what difference was it really making? And, uh, and there, um, Kate talked about what had happened at the end of the last year. They'd sat around, they'd looked at their data, and the three teachers had realised um, that Kate's class was making about two months more progress than the other two classes. And it was their data, so they trusted it. They can't just dismiss it. Oh, it's just a test. It doesn't mean anything. So they felt they had to do something about it. And through talking, it's the dialogue, not the data, what they realised is Kate was better at getting the kids to settle down at the start of class. Now, in some ways, it doesn't take a randomised controlled trial to, to know that that might boost learning. Um, but it also helps their rules and routines about how do you bring kids into the class and get them focused are one, something that's really backed by the evidence. The goal isn't a compliant passive classroom, but getting the kids actively working and, and learning makes a difference. And so once this has been identified, of course, Naomi and Natalie want to know how to do this. Why wouldn't they? They care about the kids learning. And so it kind of flips the normal way that, it's, that we talk about in policy. You know, someone somewhere determines what teachers should be doing more of and hopes the teachers actually follow through on that. The teachers now have, working, have worked together to identify what they should be doing more of and what they should be doing less of. And it makes it much easier for that behavioural change to happen. So they took that on and it's starting to work. And now that's a lovely little story. But what does that have to do with changing the outcomes for 3.8 million kids? And one of the things that was special and different about Brightvale is that this wasn't just a fluke. It wasn't just a few teachers figuring out a new way of working. But the Education Department of New South Wales had provided the support, had given a context which made that adaptive approach much more likely. And I won't go through all of the details. I talked about the example a bit in my report from 2015 called Targeted Teaching. Um, but briefly, they had said, here is a tool that you can use to check where each student is at. Gather the data every five weeks. That's not a test. That's saying, how are the kids going in their reading, in their writing, in their counting? Um, they'd all, they also gave an instructional leader to help Kate, Natalie and Naomi and their colleagues really understand how to use this new tool, how to gather the data, how to make sense of it, and then what to do next and differently. So they had constraints. They were told what assessment to use, but they also had support. What happened then is not that their mindset changed first and then the behaviour changed, it was the other way around. Their behaviour changed first. They had to be more rigorous in what they were doing. And then when they saw it was working, then the mindset changed. And one of the reasons that gave me great confidence about this program is it wasn't just these teachers saying, yep, this is working for us, but the teachers in this, in this upper part of the primary school who were not part of Early Action for Success said, hey, I want some of what they're having. And the principal rolled it out across the whole school. Not just in Brightvale, this program's actually in over 400 schools in New South Wales. 
the evaluation that came out recently said the results are not yet improving as much as we would like. There's some positive signs, but we're seeing all the right things in teachers taking, changing their behaviour, taking on that professional responsibility that I talked about, being more aware of where each child is at, all the things that we know make a real difference. And in 70% of those schools, the principals have actually expanded the program, not just in the first three years of learning, but throughout the whole school. So it's a great example, not of an adaptive education system across all of New South Wales. This covers about 3% of New South Wales students, but still, this is learning at scale. Mm. You've used that term adaptive, um, which I understand to be a biology term. Where's the link there? I, the link uh, comes about um, in part because that's my background originally. I, I trained to be a population geneticist, which is all about natural selection and how that works. Yep. But actually, there's a, a really very strong parallel. Let's think about what teachers do in the classroom or even preparing for the classroom, writing their lesson plans, deciding how they're going to uh, deliver the lesson, how they respond in the heat of the moment. I'm going to cover all of those uh, things and call them teacher behaviours. And the research evidence says it's the teacher behaviours, it's what the teachers do that makes a difference to student learning. But of course, teachers do different things. Sometimes that's because they're working in a different context. Working in regional New South Wales is not the same as working in inner city Melbourne, Sydney or Brisbane. And sometimes it's because teachers have their own style. Sometimes it's because I was taught that way 30 years ago. Sometimes because my principal likes to do it this way. I read a new paper that sounded interesting. The whim of an education minister. There's all of these pressures that have change the way that teachers actually do their day job. So the population of behaviours, because it's not just one behaviour, the population of behaviours hasn't got there by design. It has evolved over time. But it hasn't evolved over time through a deliberate process of saying, I've tried three different ways, which way helped my students to learn more? It evolved over time under a whole range of different selection pressures, many of which might have had not much to do with whether the kids learnt more. It was just too hard to do it another way and I didn't have time. Or that's just the way we've always done it around here. So the idea of being adaptive is to focus not on let me try a whole bunch of new things, but let me be really careful about what I select and keep doing because in evolution, that's the key. Darwin didn't call his theory evolution by natural innovation. That's a recipe for green, uh, for blue trees and animals with three heads. It's evolution by natural selection because what you keep doing is the power. So that's the link, but then there's an important difference. And the difference is that in biology, there is a natural process, the ruthless logic of natural selection is that only the fittest genes can survive. Only the ones that, um, where the organism has, uh, has offspring and that goes through to the next generation. So that's an automatic process in biology, but it's not in teaching, as I described before. What was so special in the Brightvale example is that they had put in that very precise, very rigorous process of selection. Hold on, something you're doing is differently 
means that your kids are learning two months more in a year. Let's isolate that thing and do more of it. Mm. So why is it then that Australia needs an adaptive education system? What are the challenges that we're facing currently that means we do need to put something else in place here? So let's zoom way out from the classroom to think about the, the challenges at the highest level. And, and I would say there are three challenges that we have to deal with. The first one is to get better at the core academic subjects. That starts with a strong foundation in literacy and numeracy, reading and writing, but it's not about back to basics and just doing those. We also, people also need to have knowledge. Even in a world of Google, you need to have pre-existing knowledge so you can make sense of it and interpret it. And so the traditional sciences, humanities, languages, all of those things that we've thought of as the goals of education, we need to get better at them. The evidence for that comes partly from the international tests um, where Australia is not doing as well as Australia used to do let alone as well as the best countries in the world. Mm. And those things still matter. But the world is also changing. So the second challenge is that we need to change some of what we teach and how we teach it. Because as young people go into the, out into the world, there are not so many entry-level jobs where you can learn on the job. They, employers want people who already have the ability to collaborate, the ability to persist the ability to think creatively and critically. And uh, as we have more and more people finishing school, we can't just use school as a sorting mechanism. Some people can tick those boxes, others can't, and we'll go into manual labor and they don't need it. Actually, in the modern world, everyone needs this broader, rounder set of skills. But we don't fully know how to teach that. Hmm. Um, it's actually quite difficult to measure. People are doing a lot of work and some great work on how to measure it, but we're still learning that. But we don't know how to teach it. And so the, let me contrast these two then. The first one, building better academic skills, we know quite a lot about. So that's more of an exercise in standardisation, in optimization, in taking the things we already know and doing them more systematically. And of course, that'll vary a bit place by place. But this second one about setting young people up for a changing world, what we're doing at the moment is not working, so we necessarily need to innovate a bit more there, but to do it systematically. So those two chain challenges are really quite different, but we have to learn to do both at the same time. The third one is potentially harder again, and that is that we have very wide gaps between the educational haves and have-nots. You and I have spoken about that before. We have, yes. It's not clear that they're closing, maybe they're even widening, and we need to deal with that. Um, I, I'm not sure whether an adaptive education system necessarily is the best answer for that, but in terms of how do I standardise some elements of teaching while innovating in others, adaptation is fantastic for that because populations get better at adapting to their current environment but also retain flexibility for, for when the world changes. Now, we have, of course, had many reforms previously in, in the education space. Why have reform efforts up to this point often failed to deliver? Yeah, it's, a, it's something that I was really thinking about. How is this different from what's gone before? Many reforms have been successful in part and maybe not continued or maybe improved one aspect of things but, but fallen over in another place. And... And what I think has been happening 
is that we've had different styles of reform that have not been broad enough. And I can, I think there are three groupings of reform, three types of strategy that are worth calling out. The first one I'll, I'll talk about is input-focused strategies. And uh, by inputs, I mean everything from who's teaching, how are they teaching, um, what money do we have going in, but also what support are schools getting. So the things that influence what goes into the broad teaching process. And the idea of an input-focused reform is pretty simple. Let's identify what the good things are and let's get more of them. So let's be more selective about who we let into teaching. Or let's do the initial training better. Or let's produce a list of the most effective teaching practices and try and encourage those. But the world is a complex place and classrooms are complex places and just trying to pump more inputs in in the end, it's not what you put in, it's how it gets used in practice. And so input-focused reforms are highly valuable, but they haven't been enough. Now, the second type of reform that has been more in vogue for maybe the last 15, 20 years um, are what I call outcome-focused reforms. And the idea there is to identify what you value, the outcome. That's everything from kids doing well in reading and writing through to finishing school, through to being set up to go on to, a, to, to success in whatever they choose in life. So define the, out, the outcomes that you want, measure those and value them, create some diversity and let the market do its job or let bureaucrats measure uh, those outcomes and, and provide incentives to deliver more of them. And I have to say that I, I used to be a management consultant and management consultants have been very responsible for this outcome focus. There's, a, there's an old saying, what gets measured gets managed. If you don't measure something, then people won't pay attention to it. And there's a lot of truth to that. But these reforms have also fallen down. So one of them in the United States was about saying, let's set high standards for what every student should be able to do. And for schools that don't reach that, we're going to whack you first time and whack you harder the second time and the third time and the fourth time will close you down. And that will give all of the schools an incentive to, uh, to improve. Actually, what it gave an incentive was to make sure that the numbers came out right, whether that reflected the truth or not. So the first thing that the schools do is they narrow what they're teaching to only those things that are going to be on the test. Then they restrict the number of students who sit the test. Um, and then uh, in the end, some, some just cheated. If you provide a strong enough incentive to hit a, a target, humans will find a way to hit that target, even if that, that doesn't represent what you really wanted. In Australia, we've gone a slightly different path. We've mainly gone down the path of what's called school autonomy. Give the school and the principal more rights to decide but then hold them accountable for it. Now, giving the principals appropriate control and flexibility is absolutely right. But what I found in previous work was it's just too hard to put all of the different pieces together. So in a sense, it's abrogation of responsibility from the departments to say, I don't really know how to teach reading or what the best way is. I'm going to hand it over to 10,000 schools across Australia. Um, and that is a, a recipe for a 10,000 flowers blooming, but 10,000 weeds alongside them. So outcome-focused reforms are really important. Having that clear target is absolutely vital, 
but again, it's not enough. The third type of reform is to say, well, if inputs are not quite enough, outcomes are not enough, what about the learning process? Recognising what I talked about earlier, that it is this adaptive, evolving process of improving. And so there have been a number of reforms to say, how do we get teachers working together better, schools working together better? Um, and in the abstract, again, that's fantastic, but it's not about the process of working together for, for its own sake. Collaboration is great for a purpose, but that purpose in, involves what am I doing, the input, how am I measuring things, how am I working together so that we can learn from each other. And so adaptive reform would be bringing all of these things together, that if we're going to improve, then we need to pay attention both to what is being done on the ground in detail, what is that delivering the outcomes, and to have a systematic way of putting those two together and deciding what different next time. And going back to the story, the simplest example I've seen of adaptation is Kate, Nomi and Natalie saying, hey, Kate's kids are making two months more progress. What's different there? How do we do more? Well, it really does sound like it's a, um, an, an, an important change that could and should be made. So how then do we go about developing an adaptive education system? There are parts of this that are happening already, right? There's lots of this learning going on within some schools, within some regions, states are thinking about this. What we haven't done is to do that systematically. And by systematic, I mean actually capturing the processes of what is working best at a school level, and I talked about that a bit, but schools learn faster when they also have an outgroup because sometimes the way of working, what, how do you actually have a discussion around data? What's the most important, what's the balance between bringing in students' work and talking about um, the grading or planning for next time? There are all of these subtleties and you can learn better if you can look outside to another school. You also learn better as a school if the region is providing you an appropriate level of support. So then zooming out, regions, can also learn over time. So one of the things that a number of a has been done a number of times and I think should be done more is to put the most expert teachers into schools and say part of your job is to help teach the other teachers. But the way in which you do that really matters. Do they have, do you get the right people? Do they know enough about what it takes to actually deliver change and bring people along that journey? Even do they have the time free? Do they have enough time to work with the other teachers? And do those other teachers have enough time to work with them? So there are all of these subtle learnings at the next level, whether it's about expert teachers or whether it's about a, what tests you insist on or how you gather data. So that's a learning process as well. And different regions are doing things differently. And so the state needs to learn over time and different states can learn from each other and so on. So for example, one state might be really good at supporting the more disadvantaged students. Another one might be better at stretching the top end. That's an opportunity to learn from each other. But in order to do that, you can't just say, hey, Megan, you're doing really great at lifting the top students. I'm going to copy you. There has to be a fairly detailed discussion about, well, what is it that you are doing that is different? How can I apply that in my context? How do I actually uh, make that work? And so it's that systematic learning 
at multiple layers. And one of the big insights going through this was when I started asking a, a question, not who's responsible for doing this learning, because we can point to people who are responsible, but whose day job is it to drive these learning cycles within a school, within a region, within a state? And too often, particularly at those middle layers, within a local area, within a region, there isn't anyone whose day job it is to drive this improvement process to actually understand the specific practices that are happening in different schools and then to link that with what's working best. Most often, uh, if you're in a government system, those regional layers, or if you're in a Catholic system, those regional layers are about accountability and line management, and that's appropriate and necessary, but it's not the same as improvement. For independent schools, I'm really not sure how they have that sort of learning. There are informal networks, but again, if they're informal networks, that's not a systematic process for making it happen. So you've touched on a few of these already, but bringing it all together, um, Pete, your discussion paper proposes six areas that should be the initial focus in developing an adaptive education system, thereby improving outcomes in the medium term and increasing the effectiveness of the improvement process itself over the long term. Can you talk us through those six areas? Absolutely. The first one it goes right back to the heart of this. You cannot do good selection unless you can tell which students are making more progress and which students are making less. And NAPLAN gives us an insight at some level, but actually this needs to be happening in every classroom. So step number one is to make sure that teachers and schools are better able to track the progress of their students in a way that informs their own teaching. And there are things that, they, uh, that can be done by departments to help that, including providing better tools um, to make it easier, providing some training, providing some time, and, and providing uh, these expert teachers to do that. So better tracking of how much progress is actually happening for the students enables you to get into this improvement cycle. The second thing that we should be doing is building better ways to spread and share this information across schools. There are already are, is a lot of focus on this, communities of schools, networks, and a range of things, but sometimes it's a, it's a bit haphazard. Sometimes you don't necessarily have the right people in the room. So if you're talking about how do I improve my maths teaching, actually it's not that much help to have the principals in the, in the room discussing that from different schools, because they're not doing it day to day. You might want them there for leadership, but you really need the, the people who are leading the maths teaching in the school to be having that discussion. What tests are we using? How often? How often do we revisit material to make sure that the students have really got it and locked it into their brains? It's that level of detail that you need to have in the discussion. Third, and this would help both of those first two, Australia needs to make better use of its most expert teachers. Other professions do this, whether you've got a chartered engineer or a chartered accountant or a senior doctor, part of the responsibility is to train the other people below, to train the next generation at the same time as being a practitioner. In schooling, that doesn't happen nearly enough in Australia. Some people would argue that the teacher's job doesn't change much from the first day they walk into a classroom and have the class on their own 
till the day that they either leave or become a deputy principal or take on a management job. In other high-performing countries, they've created a pipeline, a, a career pathway for the most expert teachers to stay in a purely teaching role in the first instance to tr train other teachers within the school and then to train teachers across schools. And that allows this learning and sharing. An important piece of this is that the emerging evidence is that these should be subject specific experts because teaching mathematics in secondary school is not the same as teaching English in primary school. There are some common things, how do you build good relationships, have good routines, etc. But there's also a lot of knowledge about how do I teach specific concepts? How do I recognize when a student has really got a mental block and doesn't understand something? Um, so making more use of the most expert teachers. This would also have the benefit of raising the status of the profession. Um, we believe that uh, those teachers should be paid more. They would be amongst the most important people in the profession. Now, to be fair, there have been a whole range of small scale initiatives in this sort of space. But again, we haven't systematically learned what, what, what made the difference when they were successful. How do we roll that out at scale? Now, the fourth and fifth ones are two sides of the coin. And they go back to this idea that we both need to improve some of the current academic outcomes, but also learn how to do some new things. And they sound as though they are at odds with each other. But in a strange way, I think that they could actually really support each other. So the fourth of these are here, things that Australia should do is that teachers and school leaders should embrace some of the benefits that come from standardising some elements of practice. Thinking outside education for a second, in medicine that would involve routine hand washing, but all the way now through to checklists for surgeons. Why do checklists help surgeons? It's not because surgeons are so dumb, it's because the job is so complicated. And if they've got a checklist for the obvious stuff, it means they are focused on the non-obvious stuff. Likewise, within teaching, where a school can say, here is the way we do things for teaching this part of reading, particularly around decoding words, um, that type of routine and standardised approach built up over time and improved over time on the basis of the evidence frees the teachers up to say, well, how do I engage the students? How do I spend my time building the relationships, which is different. There's no recipe to say how to build a relationship or even reading comprehension, which is a less well understood. So standardizing some elements of practice is not a mark of weakness, it's a mark of professionalism. The fifth piece then is to say, there are some things that we know we're not doing well. And that includes uh, sometimes engaging all students Building, uh, building new capabilities like resilience, etc. Um, some people are doing an amazing job of this, but again, not systematically. We need our schools and our teachers to be more systematic in innovating, which is not just making things up, but it's doing deliberate small-scale experiments to say, let me try an outdoor education program and see if that builds the, the students' resilience. In order to do that, I need to be, have something that I'm going to measure did it make a difference? Should I continue it? Mm -hmm. Now, these five things, 
tracking the progress of, uh, of students, building better ways to share information, making better use of the most expert teachers, embracing standardised practice and being more systematic about innovation. All of these should be informed by the evidence base. They should be informed by research. But whereas the evidence base of what works best in principle is kind of like the, the tip of the iceberg, all of these things are underneath the waterline. And that leads to the last of the things that we need to do differently, which to design a system like this is quite a different task for our system leaders, from education ministers and the secretaries of departments and Catholic education leaders and the principals of independent schools. It's no longer about saying, I want more of X, I want more of this style of teaching or I want more training in this particular way. It's about setting the context for better decisions to be made every day, in every school, in those local environments, in a way that is rigorous and linked to the evidence, but also rigorously linked to, is this working here in the way that our, we're doing it with our students? So a, what I say is that in an adaptive education system, the ultimate role of the system leadership and the centre is system design, to design what the rest of that system looks like. And, and that's a pretty new way of thinking. Wow, thank you so much, Pete, for your time today. It's a, it's a fascinating system, and hopefully we'll be seeing a shift towards adaptive education at a nationwide level in the very near future. If you'd like to download a copy of Pete's discussion paper, head to our website, grattan.edu.au. As always, you can stay up to date with all of Grattan's news reports and events by subscribing to our Twitter at Grattan Inst or on Facebook, Grattan Institute. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, then please help your friends to find it by heading over to iTunes and leaving us a rating or review. Thanks for listening. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.